0: Everybody. welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am Ben Bukulski, as always your host, doing my best to bring you the greatest information on the planet from the greatest individuals on the planet so that we can all thrive, become high achievers and lead this human species into the next thousand years. There's So many things that interest me and the mind is at the top of the list. The mind and the brain and the nervous system and how all these things integrate into this complete system that we're living with. So, today's guest is an expert on the mind and heart rate variability and the autonomic nervous system and how these things integrate. So, here's what that means. Stress and the way your body senses information is integrated into all the parts. Your body works as a whole system. So, if these systems become disconnected. Your performance will suffer, your ability to think will suffer, your ability to perform in general will suffer. So Dr. Tim Royer joins me today to talk about treating things like anxiety and depression and ultimately performance optimization By looking at the integration of neurofeedback, which is looking at EEG studies of the brain and combining it with heart rate variability training. And he gets to work with a lot of high-profile athletes and and celebrities to teach them high-performance habits and really how to dig into optimization of this mind-body integration. And if you've ever heard of the place called HeartMath Institute… I suggest you guys look that up and, and they've got a lot of quantified data around what it looks like when these things, these systems come into harmonious balance, super interesting stuff. And we're, you know, sometimes as humans, we don't know what we don't know. And if you, start, if you can't see it and you can't logically rationalize it, sometimes it's hard for your brain to understand or even think about, care about it. So looking at heart math was a really interesting journey for me to start opening my mind to what may be outside of our five senses. If we just get our body into sync, our body and our mind, into our harmonious place. And so that sounds a little bit esoteric and woo-woo, but this is not a woo-woo conversation at all with Dr. Tim Royer. He's a neuroscientist, a neuropsychologist specializing in training the brain through neurofeedback and HRV. He's the owner of the Royal Neuroscience Clinic in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He sees patients every day and he actually offered to allow our listeners to become patients as well, which is incredible because usually these people are super busy and getting in with them is you know next to impossible. But he works on things like ADD, ADHD, insomnia, and performance optimization. So I'm sure you to love this conversation because this is super interesting. Now, this is kind of your first dive into this stuff, right? So if you've never heard of these things before, this is a good introduction because Dr. Royer's conversation is not particularly complex. It's relatively simple, provided you have a very base level understanding of you know, the integration of heart rate variability and the states of the brain. And if you don't, I'll do my best at the end to summarize some of these key points that we're talking about. But I think you're going to understand it really, really well. And if you're not interested in this stuff, I think you should. I think you should open your mind and realize that here's the benefits you could experience, right? So as far as performance goes, your performance goes up while your perceived exertion goes down. That's really cool. Your ability to learn and think and uh, retain new information goes up. Your ability to grow new brain cells in the hippocampus goes up. Your ability to stay calm and peaceful in stressful situations goes up. It's so many things and well beyond that. Well, well beyond that. You know, there's also some esoteric things that come in, like potentially being able to transcend and, and visit different dimensions. But again, we won't go there because that's not part of the woo-woo. It's not part of the conversation right now, right? But you guys are going to love this podcast. Before we get into the podcast, I want to tell you about one of our amazing sponsors of this podcast, Butcher Box. Butcher Box has generously offered to hook you up because you're listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Because you're amazing. Because you love meat as much as I do, and we love high quality meat as much as I do. I hate going to the grocery store and I hate going being, being disappointed with the quality of meat I have to get. And honestly, I just won't eat meat if it's not high quality. If it's not grass fed, I'm not touching it right now. And that sounds. You know, maybe a little extreme, but it's the truth. If I go out to a steakhouse, I'm not eating a steak that's been fed corn because I know it's going to be inflammatory in my body. So 100% of the time, I'm getting grass fed beef and I know it's expensive, right? I get it because you're paying the middleman. So Butcher Box cuts out the middleman. So it's so much more affordable and it's coming straight to your door. And, you, you know, it's best quality meat you're going to find. You're going to be able to access 100% grass-fed, grass-finished, certified pasture-raised beef, free-range USDA-certified organic chicken. You can get wild-caught Alaskan sockeye salmon. You can get pork and so much incredible value. When you go to butcherbox.com and use the code MI40, MI40 at check out to receive 20% off your first butcher box. You guys are going to love it. I give you my word. It's really high quality stuff. I eat it. I love it. melting in your mouth. Sweet, buttery goodness. and I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. I hope you are too. Enjoy the show with Dr. Tim Royer. Realize, and you know this, it's not just about hard work. And you also mentioned something that some drugs can actually kind of put off the need for the parasympathetic stimulus or balancing the autonomic nervous system. And I love to hear about that because I know after a little bit of research that anabolic steroids do that, most bodybuilders are going down that path and they're kind of overriding the the sympathetic stress, right? They're they're turning down that sympathetic stress and allowing their body to grow anyways, but facing the long-term consequences of just massive amounts of sympathetic drive. Yep. Yep. So you said you wanted to kind of lead us down the path around the energy utilization of the autonomic nervous system, which, to be honest, nobody's ever spoken about before. Like, I got a lot of people talking about the sympathetic parasympathetic balance and the vagal tone and how to tactically approach that. But nobody's ever talked about, you know, delivering energy to the ATP or the ATP to the, to the actual nervous system, if, if that we're referring to. So, you know, when you're talking
1: about the brain and the body, it's all electrical current. I mean, the whole thing is driven off of electricity. You know, in order to move my hand, you know, that's a signal that starts up in the sensory motor strip and goes over to my hand and then muscles, electrical impulse, neurons, neurotransmitters, all that kind of stuff are complex electrical responses that are happening. And so we have to understand this electricity and like, where does it come from? You know, I get it when my phone says, you got 10% power left, right? I'm running through the airport to try to find some place to plug in to get power, right? You know, and when I plug it in, I'm getting power from some power plant, you know, who knows how far along away, and it comes through the grid, and all of a sudden my battery gets charged, right? And I'm ready to go. I'm at 60%, right? But the body and brain, totally different. Like, we don't plug ourselves in. And so it's like, where are we getting this electricity? we're we're manufacturing it like how does that happen you know and that's where I like to like to start is you know where does this all come from and it's not only are we using energy but we're making it which is just crazy you know we're the, like the most optimal power plant on the planet is the human body I mean it's just crazy how efficient it is right and so I usually like to ask the question like where does the energy come from right and uh, it doesn't take too long if you think about it. You know, well, I need food, right? Like I got to have food. If you don't have food, you can't make energy. Different types of food. We know about carbohydrates, which are, you know, really fast burners. We know about fats, which are slow burners, proteins, you know, all these different things. They, they're burning differently, right? And they're, they're energy sources. And nutrition is super important, but I can go a few weeks without food, right? And I'm still alive, you know? The electricity is still humming along. So it's important, but it's not a number one, right? Three, I, I would put it like number four as an important resource. And I'd also say the quality of that food is, is very important. Like, can I make energy from a Big Mac? Yeah, I can make energy from a Big Mac, but I would raise the question does the body then seek? Other forms of food to try to miss the gap that the big Mac. I'd argue
0: that all day for sure, right? Because I mean, I, I, the analogy I was give my kids is like, if you're eating foods that, that's empty in micronutrients, your body has to literally pull it from other places and then it ends up costing more energy and almost like sapping your body of those vital nutrients.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if I'm efficient with that and my food is, is clean, okay, then my power plant is clean. You know, just, you know, we got dirty power and clean power,
0: right? Sure. So, Power plant, we're talking about mitochondria producing ATP from kind of the reduction of NAD, NADH type thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that that kind of the the electricity source?
1: Yep. And how that's all getting activated is by these essential things that we have to take in. So, you know, number three, I'd say is two and three are kind of close, but three, I would say would be uh, hydration. You know, we all know about water. It's important to hydrate, uh, balance there. You know, I can't go as long without water as i could without food right
0: right how much do you look at quality of water like you know you have some scientists out there talking about you know the fourth phase of water right the exclusion zone water you have people talking about energizing your water with you know certain types of cyclone type like energizer things and like how important is that is there? you know scientists talk about dead water sometimes scientists talk about you know highly mineralized water or reverse osmosis or like the type of water like do you look at that deep into how much that's contributing to the nervous system?
1: Yeah, I mean we don't get into that deep with our our clients, but I am super big on the gut and the biome in the gut. And
0: you know So you don't like chlorine in your water?
1: I do not like chlorine in my water, and I'll tell you, the last 4 years I've been very, you know, particular with that. And it is cha- I think that and probably some kombucha and some other things has changed my health dramatically at 53. I think I've been the healthiest I've ever been the last four years. And if I really, apart from my big commitment to sleep, the last decade, I'd really put up there the water, getting rid of all the chlorine and the other things in it, and then taking care of that gut. I mean, that gut has more neurotransmitters in the brain. And so we need to be thinking about the quality of the water. But it's, Again, a particular it's filter
0: using? I know it's kind of off track, but is there a particular filter you like to use? Just the audience likes to things.
1: I use a Berkey but,
0: you know, gets rid of all the chlorine for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah, and it helps. And there's more advanced, and you know, I don't claim to be an expert in that, that side of things. So, number two, and I kind of put it up there with the water is sleep. Okay, and this is like I do a ton of work with professional athletes, have for years worked with number one in the world in golf, number one in the world in tennis, MVP of the NBA. You know, hundreds and hundreds of Olympic and pro athletes, and the number one thing to keep these guys sustainable over time is sleep and the quality of that sleep, sleep, not just the sure. quantity. So we're very particular about getting sleep studies. We have a mobile device that we send out to people's home that we're reading EEG all night long. Not you know, you know, no problem with a movement tracker, those kind of things, but. We really want to get live EEG so I can see what the brain's doing. And the big kicker in that is how much deep sleep you're getting in relation to your production of testosterone, your natural production of that.
0: Oh, so explain that to me. So are you doing like a sleep study and saying, hey, you got two hours of deep sleep last night and doing blood the very next morning and saying, hey, here's where your testosterone is? Yep. Interesting.
1: And then we'll follow entire NBA teams throughout seasons. And it's amazing the level of testosterone at the beginning of the year versus the level at the end and how closely that correlates to their disruption in sleep. And they basically go from, you know, a 20 year old super powered engine, you know, this guy that's just an elite athlete by Christmas, they're looking like they're 35 year old. And by the end of the year, their testosterone looks like they're 55 or 60. And the number one contributor is this ridiculous 82 game schedule
0: sure and and going outside of your circadian rhythms because you're changing time zones and
1: yeah yeah and so we have to see that deep sleep alongside of testosterone production in athletes but you also want to see that in the clinical population so I kind of work in both domains i've been in neuroscience for 25 years worked in traditional hospital settings for you know a good 12 years as division chief of psychology at a very large children's hospital this last 10 years has been much more peak performance but i still do about 50% of my caseload is clinical.
0: And I found that so interesting about you, like the, the child psychology piece, like uh, as being a parent, if you're a parent, but being a parent, it's one of my most curious areas, right? I read 50% of my information is coming about like childhood psychology. Like how do you make these little humans thrive? And not just mine, but across the world, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have four kids. <laughs> They're all a little bit older now. And uh, particularly, you know, on the clinical side, I very get very concerned about the whole ADHD epidemic of misdiagnosis. I mean, it's, it's just out of control. You know, in the early 90s, when I first started, you know, one in 40 kids was diagnosed with ADHD, Uh, early 2000s, one in 20. Now one in nine kids.
0: So do you think it's a misdiagnosis? Or do you think it's a result of of the shift in our lifestyle? Right? So way more computer time, way more TV time, maybe more phone time, more blue light, potentially these artificial lights, like what are the main, I mean, this is totally off topic, but I'm curious, what are the main contributing factors in your opinion?
1: Yeah, so I would say there are things going on, but that it's not ADHD all the time, that it's more anxiety, it's more anxiety, it's stress, it's poor sleep. 30% of ADHD kids that I've seen over years have a sleep problem, and nobody's addressing the sleep problem. And what are they putting them on? A stimulant. (laughs) <laughs> which makes the sleep problem worse, you know, which is kind
0: of counterintuitive. But if you're a light guy and you're paying that much attention to light and sleep, doesn't it just make sense that it, like most of these parents, if the kid has ADD, what do they do before bed? They throw them in front of the TV or throw them on an iPad and you go, hey, go to sleep. Okay, well, now the kid's not getting any melatonin secretion, so he's not getting in deep sleep and REM sleep. And then he wakes up the next day and he's got anxiety and depression. Like there's a direct correlation there, right? When you don't get enough REM and deep sleep, you're going to have anxiety and depression. Like that's been proven. So it just makes sense to me that like all these parents are just throwing their kids in front of the, the blue light. It just makes sense.
1: Yeah. And you got it on the flip side. You want to get blue light in the morning. You know, if you can't get that naturally, you need to get that along with your production of cortisol in the morning. But you're, yes, you're reducing their melatonin significantly. And then the meds many times are counterproductive. It's not to say that people don't have ADHD, but many times, not many times, most of the time, people are just looking at behaviors and not looking at the brain. They're not taking the time to actually image the brain, look at the brain and see, is this brain going too fast, too slow, based on what chemical we're going to put on there, if we're going to do that, or are there other ways to move the brain's ability to focus? You know, we can teach somebody physics, we can teach them to focus, right? And so having the right technology to do that Then says, we don't just knee jerk into medicine all the time. How about if we look at rehabilitation, teaching that child to focus? Because maybe their lack of focus is due to anxiety or sleep problems, those kind of things. We've gotten off track a little bit.
0: (laughs) That's all right. It's an interesting conversation, though, because, I mean, even adults are suffering from sleep, poor sleep. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to sit and watch TV in my room or on my phone before bed. And hopefully that'll help me fall asleep. And then it's the repetitive loop, right? And there's so many other things that could be contributing to poor sleep, but that to me seems like the, the shiny red object in your eye, like, hey, dummy, like take this one out if you don't if you don't sleep well.
1: Yeah, I had a 50-year-old exec who owns a large company in my office a few weeks back, and he comes and he says, Doc, I just found out I I got ADHD and they gave me this Adderall. <laughs> and I'm like, No, timeout. You would up one of the most successful companies on the planet. And yes, you're having a focusing problem. I get that. That's a behavior. But what is your brain doing? And the last thing I want to do to you is stick an amphetamine in your body and brain. Are you kidding me? And sure enough, we measured his brain and his brain was doing the opposite as far as electrical firing that you'd see in ADHD. And therefore, the chemical would have caused all kinds of Negative side effects over time, not to mention what it would do for cardiovascular risk and those kind of things. But so we've gotten off track, but sleep is, like I said, number two, a major important thing. If you go seven to eight days without sleep, you'll go psychotic. By day 14, you'll die. Like there's not very many things on the planet that are going to kill you in 14 days, but going without sleep will. And people don't understand that if you don't have that recovery process and not just quantity, but quality too. And that's why you need to measure it. You don't have that recovery process going on. The power plant cannot rejuvenate itself and function the next day. It can't make the electrical current. See, unlike a light switch, my brain doesn't turn off and on. It's always running off of electricity, but it needs these slower waveforms in order to recover, rehabilitate, and get ready to go into the next day. And so sleep, Number two, and maybe you can guess what number one is, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Number one is oxygen, okay? The energy that we obtain from oxygen is so huge. It's so important. 90, that's 90, 90 percent of the energy we make comes from oxygen. We have to have that oxygen. And you just think about it, right? How long can I go without oxygen? A few minutes? Right. By the time I get into four or five minutes, I'd probably give up everything I own to get one more breath of oxygen. Right. And you would not believe how many pro athletes, how many executives, how many ADHD people, how many anxiety sleep problem people are not don't know anything about working on oxygen production and how they're taking in oxygen and how it relates to things like heart rate variability and ultimately to the brain. And so. They're off to a pill and they're not even working on the 90% that they need to work on, which is oxygen. well.
0: Right. So are you actually looking through like breathing mechanics and people and like breathing cadence and such?
1: Yeah. So we have a device. Uh, it's, a, it's a belt that goes around the waist. It hooks into the same machine that also will measure cardiovascular activity and EEG activity. So it's a small device. I got one right here about this big. And we can interchange. So I can hook in respiration rates. I can hook in heart rate variability. I can do EEG. And that's a mobile device that people do in their home. And then just like you and I are talking, I train them any place in the world while they have the device hooked up. So we rent out that equipment. They use it. And we teach their mechanics of breathing. But then we also go through the science of it. And how the oxygen comes in, how that gets absorbs in our blood system, and then how our, our heart responds to that, which ultimately can send us into a parasympathetic or sympathetic state.
0: So this is literally a belt that's going to measure circumference of your waist, and then as you expand, increase, and then decrease as you exhale?
1: Yeah. And then at the same time, you have a sensor, which is a BVP, works a lot like a EKG that goes on your finger like this. And it's picking your HRV. Now, most people in the sports world think of HRV and they think of, you know, go no go status. You know, I'm looking at your HRV today. You can't practice, you know, I'm not going to, or in your case, you know, maybe I'm not going to lift today because my HRV is off that kind of thing. But what you don't realize is that HRV just isn't a static variable. Maybe you do realize this. It's not static variable. It's something that you can actually work on just like you work on any muscle group. And so What I do with a lot of our athletes is before they enter their event is we'll do five minutes of HRV and breathing. So they'll breathe, put the finger sensor on, and then from there, they'll go right into the game and their heart and breathing are all aligned perfectly, not in a sympathetic heightened state or a parasympathetic state, perfect coherence. And they'll actually do that also at the end of the game, because as you know, in sporting events, you produce a lot of cortisol, and if you're a, in a nighttime game like Sunday night game for football or basketball games, you push your cortisol up, it's 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and if you're on the West Coast, who knows? You know, It's ridiculous, right? And what's happened to your melatonin because you pushed your cortisol up? Melatonin is gone, right? And so you have to reboot these systems or you're going to mess up the sleep cycles, affect the testosterone. And it's a cascade effect.
0: It's funny. It's exactly what I teach Dr. Tim is five minutes before to get your mind right and five minutes after to bring down that sympathetic tone and hopefully increase the parasympathetic tone. I was suppose athletes are trying to hammer down food or, or nutrients right after they, they compete or they train. And I'm like, man, your body's not ready for that stuff, right? You have to prepare your body by just doing it. and It's literally the same prescription. Five minutes yeah. is brilliant. And so with
1: this device, they can literally see the exact Percentage of sympathetic, which is the autonomic nervous system going too fast, parasympathetic, too slow.
0: And how is it measuring that?
1: It's measuring it through the HRV.
0: So heart rate, it's actually taking heart rate through your finger.
1: Yep. And okay. if we want to do EEG, which some of them we do, okay, and we'll get to EEG in a second, we can put a one-lead EEG or we can do multiple EEGs and see what the recovery brain waves are doing. So you can have all the recovery shakes you want all the icing, whatever you want to do. But if your brain is not in a recovery state, you're not recovering. And I, as I tell my athletes, when that bell sounds or that buzzer sounds or the event is over, we start preparing for the next event at that moment in time by breathing, recovering, and get our brain, get the EEG, the electrical current balanced.
0: So talk to me about, you you have an athlete that comes off and they can't get their brain down. You know, they're they're doing the post-workout shakes, they're doing the five minutes of breathing. What is the intervention? Is it just, is it exclusively breathing? Is it mostly the vagal stimulation through breath? Or is there other interventions using as well to kind of bring them out of that sympathetic arousal?
1: Yeah, so we might actually go into an operant conditioning model where we're rewarding the brain for producing more theta activity, which is slow wave activity. So we'll literally put an EEG on, and it's much like a speedometer, okay? So There are, we'll probably get into this in a a little bit, but there's all these different frequencies of brainwave activity that do different things, just like in the heart. And these low frequencies are what allow you to recover. So we can immediately see that with a real-time mobile EEG. And then if the brain is wanting to produce less of those slow waves, we can start a reward system with the brain instantaneously that every time they give us just a little tick, a little bit of that recovery brainwave, that we're, we're giving the brain positive input, much like
0: Uh, neurofeedback. Yeah.
1: You're doing an an EEG feedback mechanism where we can hook it to anything. So like, you know, we can hook it to, for a lot of these guys, we hook it to their favorite playlist, right? And the playlist isn't playing unless your brain is producing recovery brainwaves. And if you want to sit there and obsess about the game, that's fine. But your playlist is not going to play. And your job is to get through your three favorite songs. And your brain is driving that playlist through the computer.
0: That's beautiful. Is this an apparatus you've designed yourself?
1: I've taken some technology out there. And I've done a lot of the back end on the software to make it extremely automated. So my system is a all the back algorithms have been written by me so that it's reading the brain constantly and constantly auto adjusting to whatever state you're in. So we might have somebody who's super wired at the end of the game, or we might have somebody who's super calm, I need that brain read at that exact same moment, and be able to start to reward. So yes, a lot of that is kind of software that I've adapted combined with breathing and HRV, which many times you'll see these things in vacuums, you know, you'll see your Cortisol sleep work in a vacuum, you'll see your vision work in a vacuum, you'll see HRB. But what I've done is bring it all together in a comprehensive autonomic nervous system package, which says we're focusing on the autonomic nervous system. Whatever it takes to balance it, that's what we're gonna do. You know, if we find if we have a cheap mobile MRI in the future that can do that, you know, we'll use that, whatever it takes to balance the autonomic nervous system. And that's where I would Want to talk just a little bit about how we work with the autonomic nervous system?
0: Perfect. So even before you do that, I'd love to just back in. And, you know, so some of the audiences may be new to the podcast; it's maybe the first show they've heard, or maybe they haven't heard the other podcasts we've done on, on the autonomic nervous system and HRV. So if you could just give us a bit of a maybe a thirty second to three minute background on kind of what you are trying to influence there with the parasympathetic, in particular, like I think the sympathetic is something people get, but how? Like I don't think it should be assume that people understand that the vagal, the vagus nerve is kind of influencing the diaphragm, the heart, the brain, and all these organs at the same time. And I'd love for you to just kind of explain that to us.
1: Yeah. When you're doing HRV, you're activated, you've got this vagus nerve, which is like a brake pedal for your nervous system. And so when your nervous system gets anxious, that brake pedal should do its job and slow you down, just like in the car. But some of us because we're the other things that we are in control of like our breathing and our thought process and those things get so far out of balance and we're not doing the right mechanics in our breathing we're not activating that vagus nerve which acts as the brake pedal and so kind of the slow response and the fast response of that which is kind of a a double negative in a sense you know you're you're trying to activate something that actually slows you down so that That can get confusing when you're talking about low frequency, high frequency, very low frequency.
0: The break is the perfect analogy, I think, right?
1: Yeah. And we're trying to activate the break, right? And that's where oxygen and and the gut pressure, I even believe that the mechanics of moving the stomach in and out, work a lot like a gut smashing technique where you would be pushing against that vagus nerve and, and kind of waking it up like we need to get this thing working. Sure. Yeah, and there's a lot we could talk about HRP. Let's talk a little bit about the autonomic nervous system, which is really the umbrella of all these things we've talked about. Okay, so I know how we make the power, right? We've just talked about that with oxygen being number one, sleep, hydration, and food. We're making it. But now we've got this power. Now we've got to manage it. Like, you know, I don't just want to use it all at once or I'd be eating constantly. Like, i got to find ways to decide how I'm going to use the electrical current. And so we have this very sophisticated software system called the autonomic nervous system. It's part of our nervous system that allows us to be able to dial this thing up or down, how we're going to use electrical current. Okay. And so the autonomic nervous system does this really cool thing is it uses my five senses. Okay. My five senses, and we think about those are my input devices to the, from the world. Okay. I need those five to figure out what's going on in the world. If I took the five senses away, I wouldn't have any idea how I should react to my environment. So these five senses are taking in information with vision, taking in, you know, the 11 million pieces of information we take in a second, 10 million of them are visual. Okay. But all five are bringing in information. And as they're bringing in, the autonomic nervous system is then deciding based on that information Do I need to use a lot of energy right now? Do I need to get the brain activated and light it up and get it uh, starting to activate what's called the HPA axis to produce adrenaline? Or is the information from the environment telling me, hey, I can slow down. The lights are out. It's calm. It's late at night. I'm comfy, comfy in bed. And I can slow it down and go into what's called parasympathetic. Okay, So we have these two extremes, sympathetic and parasympathetic. And any time of the day, I could be kind of vacillating between all of this, okay? The key is is that in the right moments in time, I can keep that perfectly balanced, okay? When I'm in the fourth quarter and the the pressure's on and I need to activate, I'm I'm in a a boardroom as an executive and I need to be spot on with this decision, I don't want to be going too fast and sympathetic because my, my ability to make decisions gets somewhat compromised. I also don't want to be going too slow. Okay? I want to be in this perfect state of balance. Okay. And so we need to find that spot, and that's what we ought we want to teach the autonomic nervous system to do, no matter what's going on in the environment. Okay? So these five senses come in, the autonomic nervous system then decides how much energy I'm going to use. And what we'd like to hope is that this is always congruent with the environment. And in the animal kingdom, it pretty much is. A zebra sees a lion and what does it do it goes into sympathetic it activates its hpa axis it releases adrenaline which allows the cells to absorb more sugar and it takes off and it runs okay if it survives though and it's over with that zebra will probably go into a recovery state really quick because there's no the senses are saying everything's fine so he goes down to the river right And he starts to go into parasympathetic. He starts to recover, starts to rejuvenate, get some hydration, you know, and his baby zebras are there, right? Well, as a human, you know, we have this thing called anticipatory stress, right? We're not being chased by a lion, but we're worrying so much about what if, what if, what if, that it overrides the sensory input. And now the brain is going into lion chasing mode. Even though there's no lion present, and that's what's really causing a majority of this chronic illness that comes out of stress is this anticipatory override of the autonomic nervous system that's pushing us into sympathetic and it's the what ifs or it's looking into the past about the what abouts, and it's an inability to be present and just let those five senses do their thing and what we're doing is reprogramming the brain, if it's stuck in too much sympathetic, or too much parasympathetic, how do we get it out of that spot and bring it back to a state of balance or homeostasis? Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, it's perfect. So pulling it back around to kind of your four main sources of energy, I just want to kind of sum that up and finish it off. When, When you speak about you know, food and and, uh, water and sleep and oxygen contributing to our, our body's ability to produce energy. Could you just explain that? So, is it as simple as what I mentioned there? Is it just like, hey, all this stuff is necessary in the mitochondria to produce ATP? Or is there another level there that you're referring to that I'm not familiar with?
1: No, I think it's as simple as that: is that we need to be careful of what kind of food we're taking in. And you've had some, you know, great podcasts related to that. I mean, nutrition is a hot topic right now, right? But we also need to keep that in a sense of balance, right? Like, if I'm eating all the great stuff, but I don't know how to breathe correctly, and I'm in a stressful situation, and I can't get the right oxygen, and now I'm forcing my heart into a sympathetic state just because I'm anxious, then I could have all the best food in the world and I'm going to have problems with my sleep. I'm going to have problems with my focus. I'm going to have issues in my performance in general. You talked about, you know, bodybuilding, right? My ability to maximize what the amount of work I'm doing is going to really be dependent on how balanced that autonomic nervous system is, right?
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the contribution of carbon dioxide to, you know, oxygen uh, uptake and tissue utilization, and how that is impacting the autonomic nervous system? Yeah,
1: I mean, we don't we talk a lot about on the on our exhale, you know, how we're trying to get that out of the system so that we can that we're not getting a lot of uh, absorption of that. So the exhale is super important for us in getting the carbon dioxide out. I really in that area and some of the things that you're talking about. We don't spend a lot of time in it. It's probably more than the EEG at this point is where we would go into.
0: Got it. So there's some interesting stuff you might want to look at that shows increasing your tolerance to carbon dioxide is actually one of the best ways to improve your HRV, actually one of the best ways to improve the synchronicity between your heart and your mind because your your body will be less likely to, to gasp for air because you're t- more tolerant to higher levels of carbon dioxide in the system. Super interesting stuff.
1: Yeah. Habituate yourself to, to the exposure of that.
0: Yeah, so I've got I've got if you're not familiar with Patrick McEwen, he's been on the podcast, and he's actually coming mm-hmm. into my gym in three weeks and doing a seminar on this. His business is called the Oxygen Advantage, so you guys would get along really well. Yeah, and we're going to be doing some quantification of it, like, hey, what does it look like before the course? Or what does it look like after the course? We're actually going to use a capnography machine. So Dr. Michael Hamilton is going to be coming in, and we're going to be doing some some pre, during, and post quantification of of his processes, which is. You know, super interesting and right in alignment with what you're doing, right? It's like how does this mechanical breathing actually shift your HRV? How does it actually shift the way your heart and your brain work in unison?
1: Yep. That's fantastic. I mean, that makes sense in the habituation of you're you're trying to increase the tolerance by keeping it in. Makes complete sense. And we play into that. I'd love to look into some of that a little bit more.
0: Super interesting to tie the EEG into that, which is something I don't think we've ever done. So yeah, we'll often check like surface temperature and and surface moisture. So you can see someone's stress response, but we've never, I don't think we've ever quantified over the EEG. It'd be super interesting.
1: Yeah. So the EEG is kind of where it all starts. You know, when you're kind of, you know, looking at the brain, when you're looking at this guy, it's three and a half pounds and it's running off of electrical current, but the speed of that electrical current So the autonomic nervous system going too fast or too slow impacts the signals that are now sent to all the other systems in the body. Okay. So the command center, if it goes into fight, flight, fright, state, okay, and goes into sympathetic, all the other systems are just going to follow suit. Okay. And so what happens is this thing lights up. We'll look at an EEG in a second and how we can see when it's on fire, when it's running too fast or too slow. But then it gets uh, a message gets sent down to the hypothalamus. Okay, let's release a chemical to now to the pituitary gland, which then it releases a chemical to the adrenal glands, and now the adrenal glands are all pushing out all kinds of adrenaline. Okay, but that all starts up in the autonomic nervous system, making a correct interpretation of the environment. Or in some cases, like when I work with military individuals who are special forces, they're in situations that are lion chasing. Okay, there is a lion present in a sense, but we need to be able to override that so that they can stay in a fairly calm, focused state so they can perform at a very high level behind a sniper rifle. So that's even going to another level. And that's kind of what we're doing also with our athletes. You know, when you're sitting over that putt that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, yes, that could put you into sympathetic, but we've got to stay balanced because if the message from the brain now goes to my musculoskeletal system. Everything's going to tighten up because I'm going sympathetic. So we've got to teach the ra- brain to, one, be congruent with the environment. But at times when the environment's very stressful, how do we override that? So like in PTSD, what happens in that case is somebody has been exposed to many lion chasing situations, whether that's trauma or you know something in the military, those kind of things. And the brain does a very amazing thing. It actually habituates to that. It starts to learn. I've got to be in sympathetic every single moment of the day to survive because I'm in a foxhole. And so I'm out here in sympathetic. Now I come home and I'm out of that situation and I can't unadapt. I'm stuck in sympathetic. And so we have to teach that brain how do you get out of it? Now, what is the most common way when they go to their doctor's office about that is let's give you a pill. See? And what medicine does is very, it's not very complex. And there really haven't been many major advances in some of these medicines for almost 20 years. Okay. They either push the nervous system down to parasympathetic or they push the nervous system up into sympathetic. That's all it's it's doing, really. I mean, you think of an allergy, right? That's a, a sympathetic response, a misinterpretation of something as toxic. My body sees it and it goes into sympathetic and I take a Benadryl, what happens? I feel kind of sleepy, right? Well, because I went into parasympathetic response. If I can't focus, I take some amphetamine, right? And what does that do? Is it speeds the brain up so I can focus a little bit more. We want to go deeper in that because we're dealing with the most amazing thing in the entire universe, the human brain. You get one of them, and I don't want to fill it with all kinds of crap that are manipulating it. I want to teach it to learn to fire in a way that's, that's much more productive and not just chemically alter it. You know, when I, I work with kids, and I've done that for a long time, my first part of my career, I'd see these kids, they get diagnosed with ADHD, misdiagnosis, they then get put on a stimulant. Well, now they can't sleep at night, okay? So now they're taking something. Why can't they sleep at night? Because I've overactivated the autonomic nervous system so much that I can't sleep. Now I'm in sympathetic at night. So then we get another pill, right? And now that slows the system down, right? And so we've got now we've got two pills on upper, downer. We do that for about six, seven months, and now the child's feeling depressed, anxious, all kinds of things. And then there's a diagnosis of bipolar or something like that. You know, maybe we step back, look at the brain first before I start dropping chemicals in and see what it's doing.
0: Sure. What type of kind of patterns are you seeing in the brain? I'm curious to see, you know, what would a brain that is ADD or ADHD, what type of patterns is it going to show in the brain? Is it, you say it's a very particular signature versus something that isn't.
1: So that brings us into EEG. It's great transition. Okay, so your brain, just like the heart, works off these different frequencies. Kind of the best way for us to imagine this is there's zero, well, one hertz to 32 hertz. So a hertz is how many times you have a sine wave in a second. So if I have a one hertz... Uh, that electrical current has one sine wave in one second. And those are usually really tall, and those are recovery brainwaves. They're kind of slow, but the amplitude is really high. Then I could have a 32 hertz brainwave, and that one makes sense here. It cycles 32 times in one second. And so those brainwaves have very small amplitude, and they go super, super fast. Okay, so you've got these slow ones and fast ones. And the best way to look at it is from 1 to 12 are all your parasympathetic brainwaves. These are the ones that let you recover. These are your recovery shakes, okay? It is 1 to 12,
0: okay? So that's keeping you like under 12 is still alpha? Yeah.
1: So you've got two forms of alpha. So you've got low alpha, which you should come up with another name because we're also talking amplitudes. But frequency range, you know, your low alphas are 8 to 10. And then you've got high alphas which are 10 to 12. Now you're not talking amplitude there. You're just talking the spot on the, the frequency. Everybody's got the same amount of frequencies, but we all have different heights or volumes of those frequencies. So if you think of a radio dial with all kinds of radio stations, okay, everybody's got the same stations, but the volume of the station can change and sometimes override, you know, so could I, I could have country and hip hop And the country's really loud, so it's going to override the other thing, okay? So the 0 or 1 to 12 are your slow ones, including alpha. Your first 4 are delta, delta wave sleep, which you've heard of. These are very slow brainwaves. And then 4 to 8 is really kind of a pocket here for uh, attention and also sleep deprivation. That's theta. Those are theta frequencies. Uh, four to eight so that's four cycling four cycles six cycles seven eight cycles a second okay then from 12 to 15 is like the perfect sweet spot of the brain okay this is where the brain not going too slow it's not going too fast and when your brain drops into this state it's called smr in that state is when you find yourself just accomplishing just you accomplish so much so fast. You know, it's like 10 a.m. You're like, how did I get through all this stuff? Right. You're in that kind of zone state. Or if you're out on the on the golf green, you're like everything's going in the cup. And you're like, I don't even need to think about it. I'm just like, boom, because the brain isn't going too fast, but it's also not going too slow. That's that's the spot you want to be. OK,
0: so it's low beta.
1: Yeah, it's form of low beta referred to. as SMR.
0: What does SMR stand for?
1: Sensory motor rhythm, it's different than the other brain waves because it wasn't really discovered until the late 60s, early 70s in UCLA in studies of cats when they're hunting, okay? They get into this state where they're super calm but not super fast, okay? They're, they're right in this perfect state of focus.
0: It's just like flow, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. You would call it flow state. When I, I have EEGs hooked up to athletes when they're playing, practicing, and you can see the guy when he's hitting the uh, three-pointer over and over again. The brain is just giving you a lot of this SMR. 16 to 20 is also considered low beta. Those are all kind of middle brain waves, okay? They're, they're very good for you, 12 to 20. But now when I start to use an overabundance of waves above 20, now I'm getting into high beta, okay? So it's a form of beta, but it's really fast. And these are all my sympathetic brainwaves, okay? Is These are the ones that if I see the lion, I need to use because they give me short bursts of energy, adrenaline production, and I can get it accomplished. I don't need to be using those at 12 o'clock at night when I'm laying in bed and I can't, I'm trying to sleep, right?
0: Right, watching the murder mystery on, on TV and...
1: yeah. I've got the iPad right in my face. My melatonin is gone completely, right? You know, my cortisol's up. I don't want to use those because you remember where sleep was? Sleep's all the way down in the low frequencies. And so I can't get down there. So what do I do? Reach for an ambient, right? And does that take you there? Sort of, but it isn't really getting into the right stages of sleep that you need to get into, right? So when you start to look at different conditions, they actually come from an overabundance of these brain waves in their extreme, okay? I just mentioned it, sleep problems, okay, is a person who at night, they're producing high volumes of beta, high beta activity. That station, those radio stations up at the high end are all turned up really loud, and they're worrying about stuff, and now they're worrying about the fact that they're not sleeping and they have to get up at 6 a.m., and so they're worrying more, it's a lot of high beta, right? Your anxiety disorders, PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder, addictions, all of these things come out of these fast states, okay? And many times people who think that they have ADHD or their behaviors display a focusing problem, they are having problems focusing, but it's because these high wave brain waves are activated. And the last thing I want to do is put a stimulant or an amphetamine in there And that's when somebody takes a medicine that they probably shouldn't because they didn't didn't look at the brain. And now they're having side effects of can't sleep at night, decreased appetite.
0: So what brainwave patterns would you see in someone who is diagnosed with ADHD or ADD?
1: Well, and it seems counterintuitive because you're thinking, well, this person's bouncing all over the place. But what's happening is those theta waves okay, get super high. And then the brain waves that cause our impulse control, which is 16 to 20, they start to get really low, okay? And so the theta starts to override the brain so that the brain is is checking out more often than it should. And in ADHD, you typically have two types. You have more of an inattentive type. That's the kid or the adult that's kind of staring out the window when you're talking to them, right? And you can see the theta in a sense when somebody's doing that. The one that gets confusing is the impulsive or the hyperactive type. But the way to look at this is: imagine if your brain was checking out every few seconds, and you had to reorient yourself to the environment every five seconds because you're not present. The brain keeps shut down.
0: Let me ask you a personal question. This is like maybe off the record, not a, not as a as a doctor. Is it a problem that a child or someone spends more time in Theta? So to me, when I think Theta, I'm thinking a dream state. I'm thinking a mystical state where they can kind of go off exploring in their own mind. Is, is Am I incorrect in that assumption?
1: No. Actually, early on in development, like up to five years old, you're making huge volumes of Theta. Okay? You need a lot of Theta. But there's a certain point where those stops or those pauses become so much that it's very hard to focus. So sure. You and I, every ten seconds, will probably have three bursts of theta. It's kind of like a governor or a regulator. It's like a little brake pedal. So kind of like the Vegas, it's, it works a lot like the Vegas nerve, right? Is every three seconds we get a miniature, like a very minute catnap. <laughs> and we don't realize it. It's beautiful how it's wired, because if you didn't have that, the electrical current would burn so much that there's no way to keep it in check. So If you and I have that, there's enough in there to be able to stay balanced, but there's not so much that I will lose focus. Okay.
0: Right. I get it. I get it from the science perspective that you don't want a child who's in school to be losing focus every few seconds. But from an actual long-term development perspective perspective, my argument may be, I mean, my belief may be that there actually may be more benefit to spending more time in, in that mystical theta where they're kind of daydreaming and thinking about, I don't know, whatever the heck happened to, they happen to be thinking about versus like, hey, you need to focus on this one plus one math problem in first grade. No, you're right
1: on, Ben. And that's why if you rely on a chemical that has a certain time frame, you can't right. turn it on and off, right? And so you're not teaching that child how to use that and how not to use it. So it's very interesting. Some of the greatest athletes that I've worked with, like MVP of the NBA, that kind of thing, is they actually have a little bit more higher theta than their-
0: No their question. Peers. They're daydreamers, yeah. man. All the people who change the world seem to be like, they're, they're the guy staring yeah. off into space. you are like, hey, wake up. But that's where they're doing their thinking, yeah. right? That's where their brain is developing. They're being creative. And we're trying to beat that out of them.
1: Right. And, but the beauty of them is they've been learned, they've learned, or I've showed them through technology- how to be able to turn that on and off. Okay. So there's one guy in particular, he's just known for performing in the last. You're going to give him the ball for that last shot at the end of every NBA game. You're just going to do it. But at the, if you watch his thetas in the beginning, like when he's practicing or if, they're really high, like he's just kind of letting his brain drift and he's waiting and he's waiting and you say, like, when's this guy going to turn it on? And he waits and then he drops the theta and he activates right because he's conserving in a sense mental energy because he can turn his theta off and on so i'm not opposed to theta theta is a good thing but the inability to turn it on and off creates problems for that child when they hit school and somebody says okay you know we need you to do this and the answer then is well he's not paying attention give him an amphetamine and i would say
0: Yeah, but maybe that's the problem with the school system rather than the child, right? And I would say,
1: let's teach him to turn that off and on. Let's not get rid of it for the rest of his life and then create an adult sleep problem because now he can't make theta when he needs to when he's 25 or 30 or 45.
0: Super interesting. I'd love to hear, have you ever drawn a correlation between the brain waves and the neurotransmitters. So when I'm, I'm starting to think my way through, like, okay, you have this NBA star, you know, he's spending all this time in theta. Have you ever started to quantify, I don't even know if it's possible yet to quantify presence of particular neurotransmitters? Like is in that scenario, is, is he have more GABA present in his brain and his bloodstream? And then when he's really amplified, is he more acetylcholine and dopamine dominant or, uh, you know, an endomide or, you know, whatever glutamate? Like, is there anybody actually quantifying these things? In real
1: time, no, but we will see that in their cortisol production. Okay. So what we'll okay. see is we'll take cortisol samples, you know, at the end of an event, or I'll see that where this person has very low theta, like not enough theta, And that's what causes a sleep problem. Okay.
0: is So their cortisol very low. No,
1: they're actually, they're not, they don't have enough recovery brainwave and they're high beta dominant. So they're, they're using a lot of stress brainwaves. That person's, one their HRV you can imagine what it's going to look like they're breathing you already know what that's going to look like it's fast rapid it's not present but their cortisols are through the roof because they don't their high betas are activating the HPA axis and you can see that over and over again So then when you're talking neurotransmitters, you know there's going to be correlation there with things like GABA or other things that are more relaxing to versus the things that are more activating they're all connected You remember the brain, has the electrical system that once the signal gets set, the other guys are just like, hey, that's what you want me to do, I'll do. But the problem is, because as humans, we have this big frontal lobe that lets us be in the future, in the past, and all this stuff. We sometimes get our head too far in front of ourselves. And in the process, it starts sending signals to our body, that's going to ultimately kill us if we don't learn to stop that. And we become addicted to that adrenaline, right? right? And that's when the whole metabolic syndrome stuff starts to kick in, and all kinds of things, because we're producing too much cortisol. But no, you're, you're right on point. You're going to see different flows of neurotransmitters, just like you're going to, I mean, you'll even see the pupil size change. I mean, every organ is changing based on what the brainwave activity is doing. And when you can start to teach the person to control brainwave activity, okay? that's when they become a master of their environment, whether it's classroom, boardroom, you know, center court, you know, at the NBA finals.
0: I see that. I spent about seven days doing neurofeedback consecutively. And it was just game changing, like just liking it to be able to shift gears right in your, in your car, your sports car. You're like, okay, I'm in first gear and I can just, whatever I choose, shift up the second or third or fourth or fifth. And You can shift through these gears and downshift when you want to downshift. It's such a beautiful thing. And I'm sure you've been doing it for many, many years. You do a great job of quantifying, obviously, all these states and and these realities. But I'd love to have you now dive into your interventions to shift it. So is it primarily just breath?
1: No. I'd say the bulk of what we're doing is going right to the brain, the electrical device. You first need to create a, a way for the brain to see itself. So you need to create a dashboard. Okay. So... That starts with a general principle of the brain has an insatiable desire to learn. You can't stop it from learning. Okay? <laughs> right now, I'm learning things about you. You're learning things about me. And we are learning. Okay? Learning is far more powerful than any chemical or anything out there, right? And so we need to engage the brain in an activity of learning, which is its greatest strength. And in order to do that, the brain needs data. It needs to know, what do you want me to do? Right. Yeah. I liken it to, you know, learning to snowboard the first time. Right. Like somebody told me all about it. Right. But until I caught that front edge, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, slammed to the ground, all of a sudden my learning motivation started kicking in. And I started to learn right away. If I hold my feet this way or that way, I'm just a minuscule difference. I'm able to move differently. Like learning that in like what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It's ridiculous. Right. The brain just needs input. Now that input was pain, okay, but it can be other inputs. It can be positive inputs. All of our learning system is based on, you know, reinforcement and learning education. It's, I kind of find it funny that in these educational settings, the way we try to fix things is with chemicals, when we're really, we're, these should be learning environments. If I'm going to teach you math, can I teach you how to be creative? You know, can I teach you to be focused, less anxious? just teaching kids to breathe you know I will of teachers that think that 30 percent of their classroom is adhd and i say let's do breathing for six weeks and then let's see what they look like we'll come back and-
0: five minutes a day tim literally five minutes a day with my kids changes their life like that
1: yeah in two exactly. weeks you know they yeah. become more focused they become less anxious they're not in lion chasing mode you know they are where they're supposed to be so the first thing is the dashboard so that dashboard can include many things it can include just a few things so we might have You know, skin conductance, body temperature, HRV, respiratory, and EEG. So the client
0: can actually see this in front of them.
1: They can see it's like dials on a computer. And not only can they see it, they can see it in their house. Like you could have the equipment right there in Toronto. And I'd say, okay, put your stuff on, let's roll. And I'd be operating your dashboard from wherever I am in the world.
0: Now, have you not seen any kind of user bias doing that? Meaning like, oh, shit, I feel myself getting stressed out. And then I see it getting stressed and I'm trying to calm myself down, but it tends to perpetuate.
1: Absolutely. And that's part, you know, that's kind of a performance anxiety. And so we have to start to, you know, okay, now what happens when you start breathing correctly? You're feeling that way. I hear that. But let's systematically desensitize the systematic desensitization to this anxiety you're having and let's get some success. Let's raise your body temperature at your fingertips by two degrees. What I can. Yeah, we're going to raise it by two degrees. Watch mm-hmm. this. And they're going to breathe. And the next thing they know, you're they're literally changing their body temperature by calming down, getting out of this sympathetic state, getting oxygen in there. And that's changing. So on their dashboard, just like on the dashboard of a dashboard or car, they could see it all happening. And some things they can move really quick. Like, their respiration rates, the last 20,000 people that I've seen, the average would be respiration rates when they come in about 14, 15 breaths a minute.
0: That's pretty good for most people.
1: Yeah. But by the time they're done, they're breathing five, six breaths a minute, all from their diaphragm. Uh, their average coherence right. is about 30% that's dealing with their heart. And by the time they're done, they're in the 70, 80% range. Some of my elite athletes, the 99% range.
0: That's really great.
1: Yeah, so they're seeing all that, right? And first thing we do, first couple weeks, is let's breathe. You're going to become a champion breather, champion breather, right? So we get we teach them breathe. I work through. Let's stop this for a second. You're not holding your breath enough at the top. You're not rolling. You're not exhaling long enough. So we create this mechanism, and it's amazing. I was just on with a 80 year old gentleman, okay, who when I first started looking at his breathing, he was 18 breaths a minute. Having all wow. this cognitive stuff. And now he's breathing six breaths a minute. His coherence is above 90%. And the guy feels like he's 15 years younger, right? And I'm watching breathing and I'm like, that looks exactly like an NFL quarterback that I work with. You know, the human body is amazing what it can learn. So once we have the data and I can see it, now I can start to do stuff. Breathing's pretty obvious. I can see it and change the mechanism of the breathing. The other things are a little bit more, you have to work on the unconscious side or work with other data. So the beauty of the EEG, okay, which is changing the EEG, is the EEG is an electrical signal. Okay, so if I had an EEG we're looking at right now, you would see this electrical signal bounce along the computer, which is really cool. And they can see that in Toronto, they can see it in San Francisco, wherever, you know, they're right there. I teach them how to put on their EEG. And they put it on, and I'm looking at their brainwave signal, and they're becoming experts at understanding this, whether they're a pro golfer or a family that has an autistic kid. doesn't matter. We're looking at the EEG, okay? And now we're going to see, when I breathe a different way, what happens to my EEG. And when I breathe nice and slow, my high betas come down, which are my sympathetic brainwaves, and my slow waves kick in. Let's try a different style of breathing and see if your alpha kicks in. Right, and so we can start to see it like instantaneously, not just guess, you know, or play some music and hope I'm making alpha. Like, I can see it right at this point. We then move into okay, can you breathe with distractions going on? So, we pull up video, okay, and they're watching any video they want to watch, okay, and as they're watching that, we're letting their breathing control the video. So, the moment. (laughs) They start to breathe in their old way. The video gets blurry and the screen almost disappears. And they have to start breathing in a new way in order to bring the screen back and make it clear and obvious. Okay. I've seen little six-year-olds keep SpongeBob clear as a bell for 40 minutes and keep their breathing at six and a half breaths a minute because they I don't, don't want on my the TV. screen to be blurry. Right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you can because you can hook it to other streaming programs and you can stream and do the same. I've developed an interface that lets you do some different things with breathing in all kinds of environments. So then we okay, do the cool. same thing with HRV. So the HRV now controls the computer. If your HRV gets off, the video will stop until your HRV gets back on again, Okay, which is related to breathing. And so this is creating a feedback loop. Every time your body does something correctly, you're getting positive feedback. Every time it does something incorrectly, you're getting negative feedback, just like your speedometer on a car. Positive feedback when you stay below 70, if you go above 80, 90, there's gonna be some negative feedback, which eventually you're gonna not drive that fast, right? But you learn to control the speed of your car with the ball of your foot without thinking about it based on a feedback loop, okay? So we do that with breathing, We do that with HRV and then the last, which is the major thing, which is just amazing is we start to do it with the brainwave activity. So now your brain is controlling the video when the high betas get up too much. So now you're going into sympathetic lion chasing mode. What's the video do stop instantaneously until you bring that back around or the brain will also have moments where, It will be in high beta, but then it will drop. And at that moment, whether it did it consciously or unconsciously, you get rewarded for that by that video playing.
0: I see implications in this with virtual reality, right? You you can put yourself into... I know the military now is using virtual reality to create scenarios that are more stressful for the warriors. Like imagine, hey, you have to calm yourself down or this thing's not going to play or whatever. It'd be really interesting.
1: Yeah. And I've actually been thinking about going into that arena with... Cause you can create these scenarios right now. We would use video for that. So like I had a, a team, a college team that had a very miserable loss to Duke in a double overtime thing. And so I was working with the whole team and the coach <laughs> for the whole semester where I worked with them, the coach made them watch that Duke game for all of their sessions. So they couldn't watch, you know, band of brothers or something else. They had to watch that game for their session. How did you, you know? feel
0: about that as a psychologist and someone understands?
1: I thought it was a little little much, but it was very interesting at the end to see how much they could go through that video and become desensitized to that loss. Like it wouldn't stop at all. At the you know as we got to the end, is yes, it was stressful for them, but their brain was able to override the stress and stay calm and keep it in a balanced state. Great, interesting. Yeah. So all of that is you're going into operant conditioning, biofeedback mechanisms, and multiple mechanisms. At the same time, we'll also be measuring hormones. We'll do, in some cases, neuropsych testing to see cognitive functioning or memory functioning. You know, I'm a big proponent of we can pick up a lot of these memory things way ahead of time. And, you know, I'm 53. What happened when I was 50 and I went into my doctor's office, you got to get the colonoscopy, right? But did he say, hey, let's get a baseline of your memory functioning just so we know in a few years if you have any memory problems, we can reference right. that. Just like we do every other test, right? But what's everybody worried about when they're 60s, 70s? or if Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Dementia, Parkinson's. Yeah. Why aren't we at 40, 50-year-old getting baselines of what our cognitive functioning is doing so that if I can find something? And many times there's things off in their sleep cycles. If we can correct that early, we can get ahead of these things and eradicate some of these things ultimately, I think, if we would be more preventative in our testing.
0: Amazing. Dr. Tim, how do I get my hands on one of these devices? Do you sell them or does someone have to come become a patient at your clinic?
1: No, we rent them. So a program works where we rent the equipment out. And then when we rent it out, you also get eight sessions, four of with me and four with one of my colleagues. So you get eight sessions a month where we do virtual. And then the beauty of it, which I love, and this is why I've been doing this for a long time, this is the most effective system, is rather than charging you for session, you're renting it for the month, so you can use it unlimited. And so what I'm teaching you initially is here's how you use it. Between session on Monday and Friday, I want you to run five sessions, okay? And then all your data gets logged, and I can review it on Friday with you. Okay, great. We're going to tweak this, 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 and you can burn that equipment out. So I have some athletes in their off season, they'll run two hours a day and they'll, be, they'll just be burning that equipment. Out. So it's a one-time rental charge for the month, which includes all your clinical time, all those things. And then I'd say before you start, you should get an assessment. And so the assessment involves looking at the EEG in multiple areas, cardiovascular, respiratory, and then three nights of a sleep study. So we. So does
0: someone actually physically need to come to you in Grand Rapids or can you just mail it to them and they can go somewhere locally?
1: No, we send somebody right to your home. Oh, wow. Yeah, we come right to the home. There's really not much additional Anywhere in the U.S.? Yeah, we actually have been outside the United States. So we'll go. And what we say is the assessment cost is the same, but you're just paying for the staff person travel to come to you. And Um, then from there, everything's done virtual. So when the staff person's there... I will do the assessment with you this way, just like we're talking. And I'll be looking at your screen and explaining things to you. We're big on education. And I tell people, kick the tires. And if you're not asking questions from me, be asking questions of your doctor. You know, what is the exit strategy for my Ambien? What's the Isn't exit strategy? Isn't that a strategy? good question,
0: right? Or for my Adderall, right? Like, right. Yeah.
1: For your kids, you know, for if you got a kid at home that's got Adderall and he's seven, what's the exit strategy for his Adderall? Correct. Because you're dealing with the most amazing thing in the entire universe, and the answer is, he just does it forever.
0: So, well, let me ask you this: I have some executives I work with who are all on Adderall—not all, but many—and they just correlate that with, "Hey, this is my edge. This is how I become successful." And and they're starting to get to the point now where I'm like, "Man, your health is going to start to see—it already is starting to see a decline." What is the strategy to get off? Is it getting these EEG studies and correlating with HIV and breath? Yeah.
1: In order to move the nervous system, there's two different ways to move the nervous system. You remember we're going back to the autonomic nervous system. That's what it's all about, right? And so the Adderall is moving the nervous system in a way that's activating epinephrine and right. dopamine, okay? And it's activating that chemically, okay? And that's a ligand gated change. It's changing the chemical production. But once it wears off, you're right back. So – you can take Adderall for 30 years and stop taking it, and you're right back where you started 30 years earlier. Okay, It's not like you fixed anything, right? right?
0: But it didn't make anything worse.
1: It could make Hopefully. a lot of things worse. Sure. It could make your sleep cycle worse. It's going to do all okay. kinds of things to your sure. metabolism. I mean, it's not just affecting one area of your brain. It's affecting your whole body. So, sure. this long-term amphetamine use. I've even seen times <laughs> where I see areas of the brain that I was wondering, was that area affected because the Adderall, not because of a brain injury. Right. Right. So we don't, you don't know that completely, but I see these patterns in these long time users that it's like, wait a minute. So you have a ligand gated change, which is only, you know, going to last as long as the chemicals in there. And there's no absolute change over time. And then you've got a voltage gated change. And that's how we learn, right? Like, you know how to ride a bike, you know what the letter A is and you'll know the letter A the rest of your life. Okay. But that happened because of a voltage gated change, not a chemical ligand gated change. And what's happened is we've settled, you know, in one of the most advanced countries in the world, we've settled for duct tape medicine. Okay. So I'll kind of add this story here, right? Like, let's say I've got a problem with my car and the engine light comes on and I go to the the dealership, the Ford dealer, drop the car off, right? right? I do the whole rental car thing all that. I come back three days later and I'm driving out of the lot and I look down, something's peculiar, I don't see the light anymore, but then I look a little bit closer and there's a piece of duct tape over my check engine light, right? I can see the light still coming out, right? I go back into the mechanic and I'm like, bro, what's going on here? You know, like you put a piece of duct tape over the light and he goes, well, can you see the light anymore? No, I can't see it. Well, you know, we took care of your problem. You took care of my problem. I'm supposed to check the engine, right? you just covered the light. This is what's happening with sleep, dementia, ADHD, anxiety, depression, blood pressure, diabetes. I mean, just go down the list. It's duct tape, right? And people are not going to be happy with me for that comment, but it's, no, it's,
0: it's the reality, right? Yeah. yeah, no question. Let's peel
1: the duct tape off and let's start doing big fixes. And if it's not you know, me, it's more integrative health. It's thinking through things. It's working with other people in the nutritional arena. It's doing different things that are making voltage-gated changes that I learned to sleep correctly, not artificially sleep, and then have a memory problem 10 years later. And I wonder where it came from. Wow. Doc kind of went off there, didn't
0: he? Dude, I like it, Dr. Tim. I like where your head's at. I appreciate it so much. Amazing wealth of information. Where do our listeners find more from Dr. Tim?
1: Yeah. If you go to com, a shorter version is RoyerNS.com. Very simple, basic website. But you go in there and there's also a point if you want to have a phone conversation with me that you can look at a schedule and you can choose a 15-minute conversation with me. You can send me an email and that's the best place to go. You'll find some information there.
0: Yeah, that's what I would do. Dr. Roy so grateful for your time, your wisdom, and your passion for this Please keep doing it. And when you find more information about child psychology, send it my way because that's yeah. a very interesting topic for me as I continue to, you know, blossom these young, amazing humans.
1: Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge responsibility. Yep. It the really responsibility is. responsibility to take care of that brain. They get
0: one of them and we want to take yeah, it. Yeah, they out. get mad at me because I'm neurotic dad, but hey, yeah. <laughs> they'll love me eventually. <laughs> cool, man. Thanks very much, Dr. Tim. Awesome conversation, man. I appreciate your time. Yeah, we'll see you. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, ButcherBox, before I summarize this podcast for you. So ButcherBox has generously offered to hook us up with $20 off our first order of ButcherBox. And that's actually quite a lot. So you can thank me for that later. Thank ButcherBox for that now by going over to butcherbox.com and using the code MI40 to get $20 off your first order at ButcherBox. So, conversation with Dr. Tim Royer. Understanding these brain states is vital. And I think he did a really good job of talking about, you know, how your brain enters these different states of delta waves and theta waves and alpha waves and beta waves and how those affect your thought patterns. So you know, if you're in a high state of beta, it's typically very, very high thought. It's probably a little bit stressed. Alpha tends to be a little bit more calm, a little bit more creative, tends to be a little more meditative. Theta is that phase just before sleep where you kind of know you're awake, but you're kind of asleep. And delta is suggested to be deep sleep. And learning how to integrate these things with the rate of your breath, the rate of your heart evidently has tremendous implications in optimizing function of these systems. And it makes sense, right? Because they're both electrical systems. They're both dependent on an electrical signal. And if they're giving opposing or differing signals and they're not in, in a harmonious balance, it makes sense that they won't function optimally. Each system may be affected by the other in some negative way. So to bring these things into harmonious balance with, you know, actually quantifying your EEG and then learning how to breathe learning how to slow down, learning how to relax muscle tone, relax your mind is so vital. You know, it's almost getting me into a meditative state just thinking about it. I want to slow down. I want to calm down. I want to relax the muscles of my face, neck, and shoulders, and allow my brain to come into harmony before I step into any scenario in my life. And this is how I create my mind, right? This is how I create my brain. And I talk to people about that a lot of the time is, you know, this idea of creating your mind before you step into a scenario, before you step into, you know, your work, before you step into your home with your family. Take those three to five minutes to calm down, to breathe, to relax, and then create the person you want to be. It's almost like you're reestablishing this foundational base level of calm that allows your brain. So, if we're talking about getting into geek speak, your hippocampus to now become a little bit more, expand a little more receptive to this new development of the neurons, to the new development of the state that you're trying to create. If I'm in a very panicked state and I'm talking really fast and moving really fast, my brain all of a sudden kicks up into beta It doesn't want to be as receptive to learning new skills and ultimately being more plastic, being more receptive to new growth. So pay attention to your words, to your breath, to your thoughts. Have a great day. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Cheers.